He was just walking along Namiga, really smack bang in the city center, and he told me he just at the corner of his eyes saw something, and afterwards he was hit from behind. Guy with the George Floyd style knee on his neck and was beaten. Experience. and welcome to another episode of the Volca Volcast with me, Connor Klein. And in today's episode, I'm going to be giving you an overview of what is happening in Belarus. So this is going to be a bit of a different podcast. I haven't delved into anything political in the past, but obviously the events over the last few weeks in Belarus. Um, now we're at the end of August. Actually, today is the 30th of August. Let me just double check that. It's actually the 31st of August. Well, today is the 31st of August and the uh, situation in Belarus started on basically the 9th of August with the presidential elections and it has it is an unprecedented situation and actually it's with a heavy heart that I uh, speak to you today from Odessa in Ukraine. Although, as you see behind me, the weather is absolutely spectacular. It is 30 something degrees off to check about it celsius but tomorrow is going to be 35 36 37 degrees in the south of uh, ukraine uh, in celsius that's just like as hot as it ever gets here so it's not a cloud in the sky and amazing weather but it's with a heavy heart because actually i was supposed to be flying to minsk uh tomorrow in fact to be there uh, with my one of my clients and we're going to spend uh about 10 days in minsk but that is not possible at the moment and uh that's the main reason why I'm going to make this podcast. Uh, once you've watched it, if you could let me know down below in the comment section what you think of this style, I may make a further update, but I want to give you just a very brief overview of the situation, what has happened over the last few weeks, and a little bit about how things might develop going forward. So as you probably know, if you've watched a lot of my videos, I used to work as a lawyer before I started this channel, actually, when I, before I made the change in this channel to do this particular topic which is helping uh, western guys meet their dream women in eastern europe and avoiding all those scammers and all the problems all the you know overcoming the, the cultural difficulties as well as how to travel here how to move here is something i'm going to be working on going forward uh, so basically giving you the information that you're going to come here to eastern europe so countries like ukraine russia and belarus and i've outlined my background as a lawyer when I worked at the European Commission and I used to work in private practice as a lawyer, uh, actually in Brussels primarily. Also, I did work in, in Munich for a, short, for a short time. And there I actually doubled some cases to do with uh, this region, mainly with Ukraine, not so much with Belarus. And what I haven't said, I think, of my channel, maybe my very first podcast episode I did outline it, is that I actually studied international relations with a specialization in the former Soviet Union, so that is obviously Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, Central Asia, uh, the Baltic states. And I did that at Johns Hopkins University in the US. Uh, I studied at the School of Advanced International Studies. This is like the premier uh, program in international relations. And I have my specialization in the region. also studied strategic studies. That was my other specialization. So it is definitely uh, interesting that although I have this channel about normally I don't discuss political topics uh, and obviously the um, 
that the conflictual nature sometimes of the region in terms of international relations is actually in another life what I would have been doing. I probably would have uh, ended up being a diplomat. That was one career path I had, and I would have actually been here in a very different capacity. But I'm not, so actually that's why I can have this YouTube channel and explain to you. So you get a little bit more about my background and where I'm coming from in terms of having studied the region on that uh, high level before and having worked obviously in one of the actors that is a little bit influential in what is happening in Belarus. Now, to give you a background uh, to Belarus since it became an independent country in 1991, obviously there was the fall of the Soviet Union, it had been the Soviet Union before, it became an independent country, and there was a transition period of a few years until there were actually the first elections in Belarus, and they were won by Alexander Lukashenko. And there have never been free and fair elections as approved uh, internationally since that moment. Uh, those elections that he did win back in, uh, I guess it was 1994, if I'm not mistaken, uh, they were stamped as being real elections. So we'll just take it that he did actually win those first ones. But since then, there's never been an election that's gotten uh, with international observers who said they were free and fair. So he's ruled uh, Belarus uh, for the last 26 years. Uh, so besides that short time, uh, before he became president, uh, basically independent Belarus was only known Lukashenko. And one of the first things he did is actually uh, uh, change the flag back to the more or less the flag that they had as a Soviet Republic before they became independent. In that short window when they were independent, uh, they had a different flag. And that is very relevant to what the situation because it's this flag here, which is the white, red and white flag. So this was actually the flag before he had it changed in a referendum. Uh, in the mid-90s uh, and that is very pertinent because that is the flag that the opposition has traditionally used uh, in Belarus, the opposition to Lukashenko and that's what you see on the streets of Minsk at the moment as a protest flag. So during Lukashenko's uh, rule of the country he was traditionally um, pro-Russian, he was very close to Russia, obviously he signed uh, a lot of agreements with Russia to, to integrate it in the Russian sphere of influence. Uh, he went as far as to actually sign a union agreement, which is actually unify the two countries at one. That was never actually implemented, and that is something that has become a thorn in Russian and Belarusian relations in the last, say, year or so, because he never, uh, in the end, agreed to actually unify the two countries. So although he's been pro-Russian, since... About 2015, he's actually changed his foreign policy and his domestic economic policy quite sincerely. And that's because of what happened in this country, which is Ukraine. So I have another podcast about Maidan and my experience of actually being on the square when there was a revolution in late 2013, 2014. I'll link it up in a card and down below in the description. You can go watch that if you're interested afterwards. And as a result, uh, as a consequence of the revolution here, Russia invaded Crimea and annexed it, which is not recognized internationally, so it's not a de jure or legal annexation, it's de facto annexation of Crimea, which is the peninsula in the south, and I was actually very close to there uh, last week, and I will be making a vlog from there, so watch out from that uh, later on the channel, when this amazing, um, amazing island, basically, that's known as the Ukrainian Maldives, so more to come about that. And as a result of uh, in Crimea, then a war started in Donbass with Russian uh, military support. Um, so Donbass is a region in the east, boarding Russia. Uh, Lukashenko got very nervous about how close he was actually to uh, Russia as a country and about his poss the possibilities of him staying in power of the long run since Russia had intervened militarily in Ukraine, which more or less hadn't been really 
considered as a significant threat up until that point. And as a result, he started to orientate himself away from Moscow. That has meant that he's become a lot friendlier to the United, European Union, to America, and to China to give himself alternatives. Uh, and actually, he had been seen a lot more positively in the last few years. He released a lot of political prisoners. They hadn't made it visa-free for me and you to go there in the last few years. So definitely things have been moving in the right direction. He actually basically had changed his uh, orientation quite considerably. But of course, he's still integrated into the Russian sphere of influence. So in the last year, what's happened is that Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, uh, has put Lukashenko under a lot of pressure to actually finally integrate this union treaty and unite the two countries into one country. And Lukashenko quite uh, adroitly managed to avoid that outcome. And, but by doing so, he obviously alienated himself even further from uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia because obviously he didn't have a pro-Russian uh, enough of foreign policy in terms of integrating two countries as they wanted him to do. So one of the consequences of that change in um, political direction was that also the Russian media became quite anti-Lukashenko compared to in the past. So they were quite negative towards him. And you had maybe six months of this. And in fact, before the elections on August the 9th, Lukashenko basically accused Russia of plotting a coup d'etat against him and arrest uh, 33 Russian mercenaries, as he called them, from the Wagner Group. So I guess we can call them mercenaries. But he said they were actually in the country to foment a uh, overthrow of his government. So you see that just before the election on August 9th, he was extremely negative towards Russia. And Russia was very negative towards him, uh, which is the opposite way norm normally would be, right? So normally he would be against, say, uh, the West and, we'll say, NATO, the EU, the US, uh, and uh, very pro-Russian. And then in the last few years, as things have changed with his political orientation, the last six months, he was basically flipped everything on its head. And he was actually a lot more favorable to you. So that's the background to the elections on August 9th. So August 9th, 2020, obviously I'm making this video on the 31st of August. There is a presidential election in Belarus. Now, beforehand, uh, the, the opposition had been a lot freer also to campaign, although basically all serious candidates were thrown in prison on some sort of charges. But the wife of one of those candidates, whose name is Svetlana uh, Tikhanovskaya, she was actually allowed to run. And no one took her seriously because she was the wife. She was not actually the politician. But basically, uh, most of the opposition campaigned uh, because their, their actual candidates were in prison and not on the ballot box, they actually campaigned that everyone vote for her. So there's a lot more freedom compared to normal, to assemble, to campaign. Uh, of course, state control media doesn't allow them on, uh, but compared to before, there was a lot more freedom. So people actually went with this uh, flag and they were actually able to group together, have kind of political assemblies. You know, they weren't technically legal, but the police didn't do it so much compared to normal. Uh, so it was quite remarkable that it was that free but of course it's not really free <laughs> uh, compared to international standards so what happened on the 9th of august um, because i have friends there and also a firm or client and i'll go into that in a little bit more detail the internet started to go really bad right so basically they started lower connectivity it was very hard to communicate with people and then the the results were announced and the announced the announced results were that lukashenko won with 80 percent of the vote and that the opposition combined got less than 20%. And in fact, I can't remember, the, the, the main um, opposition candidate, she got so low, it was ridiculous, basically. It was uh, 
it was just over 10%. And no one found those credible at all, considering how unpopular Lukashenko had been. Uh, they perceived Lukashenko to have been in the run-up to the election. Now, they did have exit polls done independently uh, outside the embassies, Belarusian embassies in some countries. And there, the results were extremely low for Lukashenko. Uh, you would expect them to be lower because people left the country, obviously. But even the one outside the Russian embassy, he got like less than 7%. So um, basically, and it was actually three, less than 3% in most of the Western European capitals, like, say, Warsaw, where there's a large Belarusian diaspora. So we can take it at... It didn't look like too many people voted from outside the country. And if you extrapolate that, this 80% victory overall doesn't look even remotely uh, legitimate. He may actually have been crushed completely in the voting. Now, the internet suddenly was cut off for an entire day. It was impossible, basically, to contact people without using, obviously, the old dial-up phone. I would say dial-up phone, busy. you had to call uh, international, which was quite expensive. I did speak to my former client who was there, uh, Philip. Normally, it's uh, cats that come over to me, but now I have these kids. I don't know if they're Lukashenko supporters. They don't look like they're Lukashenko supporters. So what happened in the following three days after the election was unprecedented in Belarus. Now in the past, his Oman, as they're known, or riot police, they're also known as AMAP, if we use the Belarusian uh, initialism or acronym. They had dealt very harshly with any public uh, protests against Lukashenko, but this time was completely like over the top. They basically went out in the street uh, because protesters went out to protest the uh, election results and they basically caused mayhem. They beat, uh, abducted and tortured over three days. Uh, it's estimated that 7,000 people. They were not only people who were at the protest themselves, it was just random people it seemed. And we could see this because even though they cut off the internet, uh, some of the opposition had organized that they were able to use Telegram, which is a messaging service, and actually have a, a channel there, you can call it, where basically they were collecting the videos that people were taking, mainly on their cell phones, and then sending to them, and then they were uploading them. So we were able to see that. A lot of time it was just like nowhere near the protest, and there was like a group of maybe 10 guys with batons just beating some random person who seemed shocked. They would see them running often towards them, kind of be looking around, and suddenly they got hit and arrested. They, were no, <laughs> they had no idea they would ever be coming for them. So it seemed extremely indiscriminate, extremely violent. Uh, just large scales, the numbers of people been detained. We saw people been interviewed when they came out, the number of bruises, uh, just people telling these horror stories. A lot of people managed to turn on their cameras when they were abducted and later be able to show just exactly they were being shouted at, accused of all different things, just randomly been beaten constantly by these uh, security forces from Lukashenko. So absolutely disgraceful and outrageous uh, behavior by the police. Uh, I would say also in priesthood in Belarus, I did not think they would, for example, just target random people, uh, only maybe select members of the opposition, which is also disgraceful. But this is just like so far beyond the pale, uh, to use the expression we use in, in Ireland, but also relevant to this region. Just completely crazy and absolutely disgusting what happened over the three days. And as you would expect, this absolutely outraged public opinion in Belarus because a lot of people do use social networks. They don't. Most people in big cities who are educated, for example, don't listen to state media because uh, they know that's obviously a propaganda channel. And people were so outraged. It turned a lot of people who had, I know, just per, just socially who were in favor of Lukashenko's regime, they were suddenly out with the protesters posting on social media how much they disagreed with what happened. Suddenly you saw them with these flags, um, which they weren't in favor of before, at least ostensibly to me, uh, because they were so uh, absolutely disgusted by what they had seen. And no matter state propaganda is going to cover that up once you've 
you know, the genies out of the bottle about how they have behaved. It also makes no sense. Uh, it also makes me, it actually makes me think that they must have just decided that no one voted for Lukashenko. Um, the, they, the real results at the estimate much made them think that just they could just beat up Brandon because probably they didn't vote for him. Uh, it just like was so shocking. And I mentioned that one of my former clients was there at the time, Philip, who's actually been on this channel, and I, I will interview him in due course when we meet up exactly about what happened. But to give you a summary now, and just to show how to affect just people around him, he was walking through the center of Minsk, having been to the gym. Uh, he was not at any protests, and he was just walking along Nimiga, really smack bang the city center, and he told me he just, at the corner of his eyes, saw something. And afterwards, he was hit from behind, guy with the George Floyd style knee on his neck and was beaten. Um, at this point, he shouted like, Ya turist, ya zdani, he shouted, I'm a tourist. He doesn't speak much Russian. I'm from Denmark. And they told him in English to shut the fuck up. They put a hood over his head, um, kept beating him, threw him into a Hummer, brought him. He said it was not very far. He recognized where he was. It was a KGB. Um, interrogation center a KGB office he was brought to he's made stand up against the wall anytime he spoke he was he was beaten with a button uh, and he was told in English very basic English just to shut the fuck up uh, they made him open his phone they searched his stuff after two hours of standing there he a KGB officer came KGB they still use that name KGB in Belarus or KDB I guess it is um, or is it K, K, KDB I think it's KDB in Belarus and uh, the officer came and said, what are we doing? I'm, I'm a tourist. Uh, and then after looking at his documents said, uh, you leave Belarus and you never come back. This is a random tourist that they abduct in broad daylight, 2 or 3 p.m. in the middle of the day, nowhere near protests. So you can only imagine what happened to people who are Belarusian, who may have attended the, the or not, as it turns out, the uh, process. He was not brought to detention center where there are uh, accusations of just horrific torture over several days. So this is to bring home just how unprecedented this was and how outrageous in Europe that this could happen in 2020 uh, in terms of reaction by uh, a government, admittedly an authoritarian government, which had liberalized uh, quite significantly, in, as I said, since 2015. So I said that was up until the Thursday. So this happened for like three or about three days. Uh, and then on the Thursday uh, after election, things started to change. You didn't see this massive abductions and beatings on the street. Uh, but people were shouting all the whole time uh, at these um, OMAP or OMAN officers. Um, shame. The, obviously, they've been shouting at Lukashenko. You'll have heard Uhadi, which is leave, um, as well as Jive Belarus, which is long live Belarus. Uh, so that was also a piece that people were willing to, to shout at the police uh, and you know take risks in their own personal safety. Um, to call out what they, the, the human rights violations that were going on massively on the streets of Minsk. Now, I've also said, by the way, in in my previous video, just how safe Minsk is because it is effectively a police state. There is very little crime uh, and everything is very orderly. So to see this happening is just like absolutely unbelievable to this extent. As a result, and what we've seen over the last uh, few weekends, we'll say three weekends, are absolutely massive protests. People don't have any fear. The numbers are so big. Uh, people are carrying these flags around all the time. There's been you know, 400,000 people probably on the first weekend out protesting in the main cities in Belarus. And uh, that has continued, maybe not quite to the same extent, but they've been extremely large. To put it in context, you haven't had 
anything like mounted protests in Belarus basically ever. You had them maybe a decade ago, but they never got close to this amount. It's absolutely increased and numbers are so big that people uh, feel actually safe that not everybody can be abducted and arrested because obviously 400,000 people is quite a lot of people to abduct. They did abduct about 7,000, it's estimated, in the first few days. And in general, there is a number called the 3.5% rule, which is that once 3.5% of a country's population come out against a leader or regime in public protest, there has never been a government that has survived. So Lukashenko is still there for the moment, but it would be the, the, it would actually change the rule basically if he stays in power because Belarus's population is about 9 million. So that's just under 10 million people and there have been 400,000 people come out in, in protests at any at one point. So that would obviously put it over the 3.5% rule and put it actually just probably just a little bit over 4%. So that puts you in context just how big these protests are and completely unprecedented in Belarusian history. So since then, in addition to these massive protests, um, there have been a few instances I'm just going to highlight briefly uh, now that have happened. There are some of them quite almost amusing, almost like dark humor. Uh, first of all, he went immediately afterwards to a factory after the first big protest, and he thought it would be a typical, I guess, propaganda piece where he stands in front of the factory workers, which is traditionally a big base of support for, for uh, Lukashenko. He was actually heckled and booed and he was told to leave and he actually went out and confronted people in the crowd and was actually quite angry and almost looked like he was about to lose it. At that point you've had these huge uh, protests, you've had him been heckled by factory workers, his traditional base. Um, so the, the, the leader of the opposition had already left the country in fear uh, the day or two after the election um, and the opposition uh, it's kind of remarkable because even though she is kind of the leader, she is not that prominent in the organizations they have, the organization of the protests. Um, she's not in the country. They're, they formed a committee to try and organize and coordinate things and have a kind of a consensus. Uh, a lot of those people have been detained in the meantime, but the opposition is not really focused on one leader or one set of demands. They basically only want free elections. They could be, you know, free elections to have a pro Russian-orientated uh, successor to Lukashenko or a pro-European or someone in, something in between, but basically they are united in wanting him to leave only, but they don't have a particular leader and they didn't occupy any buildings, uh, which is very different to what we saw in Ukraine in 2004 and 2013-14, so that they occupied uh, Maidan, the main square in, in Kiev, as well as other places across the country. So they were trying to occupy uh, important public buildings. This has not happened in Belarus. This is a major difference. So while people come out uh, and they do organize in huge numbers, they then leave and there isn't a huge amount of, we'll say, uh, progress in terms of actually making him go. Because the only way if you don't take over public buildings and actually take him over the state is that basically the elite itself has to turn against him. And so far that has not happened in big enough numbers uh, with respect to Lukashenko. So another big difference between what happened here in Ukraine in 2013-14 and what I saw and uh, what's happening uh, today in Belarus is that there is an absence of flags other than that red and white flag. So it's obviously a protest flag against the government of Lukashenko and the state, but there are not very many Russian flags there and there are not very many, say, EU flags there. So this is very different. It's not really um, about between East and West for influence over Belarus, the EU, uh, whilst they have warmed relations, they don't really care too much about. It's not a high priority, shall we say, for the European Union. Uh, maybe more so for the countries that border like Poland and Lithuania. As we've seen, those countries take a, a more proactive role than normal in the EU's foreign policy on this. And 
Uh, Russia obviously sees it as a huge priority. Most EU countries actually would prefer to trade with Russia than necessarily to have a revolution in Belarus in terms of their own economic interests. Um, you know, obviously Russia is massive and Belarus is small. Um, that puts it into context. But the countries bordering do have maybe, uh, well, they definitely have decided that um, Belarus overthrowing Lukashenko maybe coming out of being in such a close proximity to Russia is in their interest um, more than the other EU countries. So the EU stance is basically not to recognize the elections, not to recognize Lukashenko as having won them and for a peaceful transition to free elections, maybe an interim government or someone taking over, uh, which is basically what the opposition broadly want. They basically just want to have free elections. Russia, on the other hand, is in a very tricky switch situation because um, they just spent six months <laughs> talking about Lukashenko. Now suddenly he's turned 180 again, and now he's uh, obviously, he feels like he will lose power unless uh, basically Russia intervenes to save him at this stage. So now he's gone from accusing of plotting a coup against them to basically saying that the whole of um, protests are organized as a NATO plot, as an EU plot to overthrow his government, that NATO is, you know, basically massing forces at the border about to invade him, all this, which is not sustained by any evidence. I'm very odd since considering that he was accusing the Russians of planning to invade him just before. Uh, but that is the narrative he's trying to create, and that is basically to try and split the opposition because some people are going to be more pro-Russian orientated, some are going to be more pro-EU orientated. Uh, for the moment, they're all unified about getting rid of Lukashenko. But Russia intervening militarily is full of difficulty for that reason because if Russia um, openly intervenes just to prop up a very unpopular Lukashenko, it could actually turn most of the Belarusian population against Russia, which would be catastrophic for their interests there. At the same time, if they just let him continue and he is overthrown by popular street protests, it would be a very bad precedent for Vladimir Putin himself that people power can actually overthrow a very close neighbor of his. Uh, so if he doesn't intervene at all and do anything to assist Lukashenko, he risks that happening. Now, if they were to move and have free elections, uh, where Russia, say, intervened, just organize them, or, and really they were free, uh, it would be unprecedented um, for Belarus, obviously, and you could not really predict what's going to happen, because there are no real polls, no one knows who might win. It could be that 80% of the country, for example, votes for a pro-Russian candidate, and Russia would be super happy, but it could also be they vote 80% for a pro-EU candidate, and basically to come out of Russia's orbit, and that would be uh, pretty much catastrophic for them uh, <laughs> if they organize, you know, if they agree to an elect, real election and suddenly they vote to basically have a pro-EU-orientated or stance. Or even the fact they decided to be neutral, which would effectively mean coming, distancing themselves from Russia. So it's not a very easy situation uh, for Vladimir Putin in order to decide because he risks basically catastrophic outcomes no matter what he does. So what we've actually seen... Uh, in the last two weeks is him basically covertly assisting uh, Lukashenko. There were strikes at the state TV. They basically fired, uh, it seems, most of the journalists and replaced them with Russian scabs. And basically seen a very different type of media and information war uh, approach uh, introduced by the Kremlin in the last two weeks where they have tried to frame things as about between East and West, for example. So EU versus Russia, that the, they have a lot of, because, you know, articles that this flag is a Nazi flag and whatever other rubbish that they want to put out there to try and split it um, between people who are more um, 
leaning towards Moscow and people are more leaning towards, we'll say, Warsaw in this, in this case, or Vilnius in Lithuania, uh, to try and split them. Also, you've seen a quite remarkable and quite hilarious attempt by Lukashenko to prove himself as kind of a macho man. In those, you remember those photos of Putin back in the day riding uh, bare-chested on a horse and whatnot. Um, and also maybe Kadyrov in uh, Chechnya being this kind of warrior type. He's been running around um, with um, an assault gun, uh, what do you call it, um, an assault rifle, uh, which for a president just looks weird coming out in military flag. His 15-year-old son, uh, they were flying over the uh, protesters and calling them rats. Uh, and then he was dressed up as a commando. It looked absolutely ridiculous, his 15-year-old son. And then they come out with all the security guards. And obviously someone's filming this on a portrait style to upload to social media for this. But you, Belarus is not Chechnya. The people are, are remarkably peaceful, as we've seen in the protests. And just this uh, image of him being some sort of warrior, just uh, it makes a mockery of him, basically. And there's been a lot of memes about him. And he's continued that last weekend with other photos of him in military attire with gun. Uh, just... I mean, it's their attempt to obviously um, store up some support from which has been, uh, he's, he, you know, they've been able to regroup the people who are pro-Lukashenko in the last two weeks, primarily because the opposition had a lot of momentum, didn't have a leader or didn't occupy buildings and really pushed that through um, when they had in the aftermath, uh, one week af after the, the election, when they had that momentum. So that is what they've tried to do. It's been hilarious. It's been, you know, just makes them look like a fool and it it makes him look very low value, I think, in the eyes of the Belarusian people that he's resorted is Also calling uh, people who disagree with these fake elections rats. Um, yeah, so looks like to me very counterproductive propaganda attempt um, by Lukashenko. So that's the current situation in Belarus. Uh, on 31st, as of the 31st of August, I trust that's been really helpful for you to get a feeling of what went on before, what happened immediately that day in the elections and just afterwards, and now the state of play in the country and what might happen uh, going forward. There is very little risk that um, NATO forces would invade the country in spite of what Lukashenko says. It's not a high priority for uh, the EU or for America to intervene militarily in Belarus. Uh, there is different set of incentives for Russia, as I said, because of its political leadership, its close ties to the country and what it sees is very obviously strategically important uh, for both the country and for its le current leadership. Um, hoping that doesn't happen and that there can be some sort of a resolution found that leads to real elections in Belarus so that Belarusian people can finally uh, choose who they want to lead the country. That is today's video. Uh, write me a comment below. Uh, what do you found this valuable to you? What if you would like me to make a further update, maybe in a couple of weeks as the situation evolves, and how you think things will go? Obviously, at the moment, I cannot recommend you traveling to Belarus in light of what has happened with violence against people who are not even at the protests. Uh, that doesn't instill much confidence in me that you can go there safely as a tourist, as a foreign visitor. Uh, that did not seem to stop the AMAP or Oman. Uh, or it actually was actually Spetsnaz, kind of special forces that uh, uh, did that abducted uh, Philip off the streets. So that is something I didn't expect ever to happen, but that is the current situation until there's some resolution. I don't advise going there for now, but hopefully very soon you and I will soon be able to go back to Belarus, to beautiful Belarus. I've had such an amazing time there. 
uh, over the last, say, two or three years uh, since I've been able to go back and film. I did also have another vodcast about when I was banned by the KGB for a year. I'm going to link that up above in a card and down below in the description as well. That was for completely different several reasons. It was nothing to do with my YouTube channel or anything like that. Well, it was a little bit connected to YouTube channel, but it wasn't about a free speech issue or anything, uh, why that happened. But you can go and watch it if you want a little bit more about my experience there. Uh, beautiful Belarus, the beautiful Belarusian people have always been so welcoming. Um, hopefully they get soon to choose uh, the leader, whether that happens to be someone who's pro, more pro-EU than Lukashenko, who was actually until a few weeks ago recently pro-EU, or pro-Russian as he historically has been and now is again, or something in between. Uh, hopefully we see that very soon and the situation stabilizes and we can go back. In the meantime, stay strong, stay safe. Jive Belarus. Da. Papa Chenya. Sar Experience.